Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back. And if this is the first time joining us here, welcome to the East Meets West Hunt podcast. Today's guest on the show, we have Jason Madzinger. And I got to speak to Jason at the ATA show a few weeks ago now out in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And Jason has been um, an idol of mine for quite a while with, with his content creation and his films and TV shows that he's been putting out. And just uh, an inspiration to me is as a lot of these, you know, past guests have been, but Jason has been one of those people that I think has really changed the game as far as outdoor television goes and is, is putting out a positive message. So I was really grateful to be able to get him on the podcast, um, to chat for a while at, at the ATA show, which is very busy time for him and, you know, everyone involved. So very excited about that. And with that being said, we got some, some news for, for the podcast here, some big news actually. So in the last, in the, I guess the first, you know, I guess seven months now with the podcast being out, uh, just it's you guys have given me such support and the podcast has grown to um, a level that I could not have um, anticipated for such a short amount of time. And I, I really, really appreciate that. So I, with that, you know, I have some even bigger plans with it and want to continue to keep putting out um, more content and getting on great guests to be able to help everyone learn and you know hopefully inspire people to find adventure through hunting as well as you know even learning myself as I'm you know going through the process the same time as you are so for 2019 I decided that I was going to look at the possibility of adding sponsorships or partnerships um, to the podcast but I wanted to make sure that whoever that I was going to partner with was somebody that was going to cre- was going to add value to you as the listeners, and and just and be someone that that I really wanted to work with from that side of things. I think it's um it's a tough it's a tough avenue to kind of go down. As actually Jason and I talk about in this podcast when. You know, when you have partners or sponsors, there's a, you know, an obligation to, you know, help them as far as, you know, you know, sell whatever product or service that they're providing, as well as make sure you're, you're putting out the, the information and content that's helping, helping the listeners. And I wanted to make sure that these partnerships kind of did both of that at the same time. So for this episode here, I'm adding a couple sponsors that are now officially partnered with East Meets West. And these names of these companies aren't going to be any strangers to you if you've listened to the podcast in the past, and definitely not a stranger to me personally, as I've been 
you know, using these products and services for many years now. So the first one that I want to introduce here is the University of Elk Hunting. So from Elk 101, Corey Jacobson, the University of Elk Hunting will be an official sponsor for this year. And so I started using the University of Elk Hunting in 2016 prior to my first elk hunt. So this will be my third year using this course. I, I purchased it uh, myself online and I have found that it was the most comprehensive course to learn elk hunting from someone who's a beginner or even someone that is experienced with it. So from the planning phases, from figuring out what you want out of the hunt, all the way through the gear, the fitness, calling aspects, learning elk knowledge, scouting, um, field dressing the animal, taxidermy, everything you can think about it that has to do with elk hunting has been put into this one course. And this isn't something that you can you know, cover in a night or in a weekend. This is a course that takes some time to sit down and dedicate yourself to prepare for the hunt. But I'm sure if you're planning um, an experience like this, whether it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing or something that you plan to do every year, it's still a time commitment, and you want to, you know, increase your chances of success by, you know, as much as you can. And this course has has been the number one thing resource that I have used to learn this. And again. I've said it, you know, a bunch of times before. I have not killed an elk yet. So don't don't get me wrong by saying that I've got it all figured out cuz I don't. But I've had some amazing opportunities and I really think I owe a lot of it to this course and learning from it. So, the University of Elk Hunting, uh Elk 101, they are an official sponsor for this year. And so I talked to Corey and we decided to work up a code for the listeners of the East Meets West Hunt podcast. So when you go to checkout, you type in code East Meets West, and that'll save you 20% off your purchase for an annual uh, subscription to the, the University of Elk Hunting. So that'll save you some good money on the course and get you started. And it also a way to show support to the podcast because that's, you know, that's how Corey will know, you know, if I getting this information out in a good way or my listeners getting a benefit out of it. Is this a, a mutual partnership here is if you use that code whenever you do purchase it. So if that's something that interests you and you're looking to elk hunt and get some more information, definitely check out the University of Elk Hunting on elk101.com and just click on the University of Elk Hunting tab. So now I did say that there's um, an additional partner that we'll be bringing on to the show here, and that partner will be Heather's Choice. If you followed along with my journeys over the last few years, you would definitely know that I've worked with Heather and used her products, her food for a long time now, and I actually helped fund the original Kickstarter campaign for Heather's Choice without knowing anything about the company, without knowing Heather, just listened to her on a podcast back in 2014, I think it was, and maybe somewhere around that year. And she came out with you know these 
a healthy alternative to backpacking meals for the backcountry. So, you know, that all of her products are, you know, gluten-free, dairy-free, high fat, high protein, just good fuel that's going in your body. It's not full of preservatives and everything else. This is fuel. I mean, food is fuel for yourself, your body in the backcountry. And I have relied on Heather's Choice products now, again, for three years of backcountry hunting. And I use it in for whitetail hunting as well, hunting the mountains, carry packaroons in my pack all the time. And even if I'm doing overnight trips, I'll take out the buckwheat breakfast or the, the smoked sockeye salmon chowder dinners, any of those um, products I've used and really rely on from that standpoint. So again, you've, you've heard me talk about it in the past and I don't want to get too long winded here, but I'm a big proponent on an overall healthy living lifestyle. And, you know, the food is something that is a big part of that. So why, why eat good at home and everything else? If you're going to eat like shit in the back country. So Heather's Choice Meals, they are a, a sponsor of the podcast here. And also, Heather decided to create a code for the listeners as well. That'll get you free shipping on any orders over $99. And that code is also just East Meets West. So you type that in at checkout and you'll get free shipping on any orders over $99. And give it a try. They have some different bundles and packages so you can try out a variety of meals and the packers there. So I'm sure there's something that that you can find for everyone. So I really appreciate again, everyone's support here, the podcast and would love to see you show support for the sponsors and use the coupon codes, use the links that, that I provide there. It helps, you know, really helps show that, that uh, we're working together here. So Let's dive right into the podcast here after, again, my long-winded introduction here to the, the sponsors. I'm, I'll be sure to keep those a lot quicker um, when we go through the, the rest of the podcast here for the year. But let's dive into the podcast here. Jason Matzinger at the ATA Show. All right. We're back for another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast, and Back in the the prime wall tent here at the the ATA show in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm joined by Jason Matzinger. Thanks for having me here. It's a quite a comfortable environment here in the wall tent. Feels pretty natural. Yeah, from uh, a lot of your stuff, you spend some time in a wall tent. This is like (laughs) right at home, isn't it? It is. I mean, if we're going to record a podcast, this is the place to do it. Yeah, that I I agree with that. Kind of keeps the sound down a little bit, you know, from the the show chaos and everything else, but totally, it's not uh, not exactly as quiet as I'm sure the Montana backcountry <laughs> when you're when you're in the the wall tent there. Yeah, but. I try not to set up my tent in hunting areas that have this much human activity. Yeah, you probably wouldn't get much elk- <laughs> vocalization. I don't think from uh, all the activity we got here. Oh and, man, <laughs> yeah, it just wouldn't be a wouldn't be a good place for that, but. <laughs> So what, uh, so do you come out to the ATA show every year or is I've been coming out to ATA, um, believe it or not to bring it full circle. The first time I came to ATA was to have a meeting with prime. That that was the main thing. That was right when prime was just starting getting going as a brand. 
Um, they had, of course, always had G5 broadheads and Quest, and then they started to develop a more high-end bowline that they named Prime. And through people that I knew in the industry and other sponsors and stuff, they thought that, you know, I should meet these people. And so I got a meeting set up. That was probably nine years ago now was, I think, the first time I came to ATA and um, had a meeting with these guys and... You know, it's been great ever since, and I said that that's a show I want to go to every year. There's a good group of people there. Um, it's always kind of the first get-together after hunting season. Everybody's got all their stories to tell. Yeah, It's just great to come see everybody here, meet with partners, potential partners, and then just see good friends and make new ones. Yeah, no, definitely. And it was funny, uh, Jason, like we were just talking before we started recording. You know, I'd wanted to record with you for quite a while now and watch your content and stuff in the past but uh just ran into you last night you know we were just at the bar socializing and i was like all right this is the time i want to <laughs> i wanted just to talk to you whether you wanted to do the podcast or not but uh you know someone i've looked up to from a content standpoint and everything for a long time so that was pretty Appreciate cool to, to get to link up and again there's not another show where you get to to meet a lot of like-minded people and for everything sure. like like the ata show so that's yeah that's a pretty cool no, it was fun. it was cool to run India, you know. It's uh, and that's part of the show. You just don't know who you're going to run into and where yeah. that you know friendship will lead. So yeah, that's that for cool. sure. So Jason, do you want to give a like a quick background on yourself and kind of what what you do and why why you're you know in the industry? I guess if you want to put it that way. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been doing hunting television, hunting production now for about ten years professionally. I was a journeyman electrician, still am. Uh, before taking the leap of faith and doing this. Um, you know, I the basis of what I do is called Into High Country TV. It's on the Sportsman's Channel in third and fourth quarter. Um, it's a Western big game show. We focus on, you know, well, like I said, hunting uh, big game, mostly across the West, U.S., a little bit in Canada. Um, I've always had a real passion for conservation so through that platform i've been able to partner up with a lot of the conservation organizations i truly believe in and been helping them create uh, content and mission statements and things like that and they've just been great partners to work with to tell stories of conservation outside of just the hunting industry because you know we've kind of hit a crossroads here and actually my film uh, in the festival tonight here at ATA talks about this. It's, it's an interesting dynamic because I'm paid. I make my living by selling hunting products. And I've been given a platform and a voice to tell stories. And it's an interesting crossroad. Every production I put out because what's really going to keep hunting alive is the 80% of people that don't hunt and how they view hunting, you know, without their vote, without their approval and what they see, that's ultimately what's going to keep hunting alive. So I always hit this crossroad of why do I even care about putting out hunting messages to hunters? Because that's a dead end road. But the reality is that's, if I don't sell product, I don't make a living. So it's just this interesting dynamic of like, 
I mean, I could sell product till I'm blue in the face, but if we don't change the minds of people outside of hunting, we could sell every product in this room and it's still a dead end road. Yeah. So it's just my, this latest film I created is called Influencers. And it's really just kind of asking the question of, you know, what, what is a hunting influencer and what's our goal? And it boils down to ev- hunting is such a small population of people that everybody's an influencer. Every single person's actions make a difference because we're so small. And whether you have a platform or whether you don't even aren't even on social media, the actions that you make and the way people view them, you know, you're an influencer of the hunting community. So anyway, I feel like I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but it's just a crossroad that I've really been hitting in my career mm-hmm. and something I struggle with because I know if I just a hundred percent want to talk to hunters, I know what, what makes us tick. I know what we love to see. Yeah. But what we love to see and what we love to watch and, and we understand and appreciate, that same message can't be just put out to the world. You know, it has to it has to be a little more filtered for them to be able to understand it. And there's a big chunk of the hunting community that says, you know, to hell with them. You know, we should never back down to them. Be proud to be a hunter. Yeah, there's blood involved. There's guts. It's nasty. You know, it can get ugly, whatever. Like... We shouldn't hide that. Well, I, I just don't believe that. Yeah. I think you have to massage your way into people understanding this, how this works, you know, otherwise it, it can be a turnoff. So, yeah. And, and like you said, it's, it's all, it all depends on your audience and when you're putting out content like that. So if you and I are talking and you want to come through and show me these, you know, say you shot an elk and you're like, oh, look what this broadhead did to it. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, a big hole. That's one thing. You and I understand it. You're showing me. You're not going to, you know, maybe put that out to the world without some sort of, you know, an understanding Re- with yeah. it. From Dialogue. The, the, the perspective. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah, it, I've talked about that so many times on this podcast. And I want to keep driving that point home. It's just like making sure whatever you're putting out there is tasteful and giving a, a message. Because like, I mean, we, we can't. There's no way of getting around that this is a blood sport, you know? I mean, right. there's there's killing involved, but there's a way of, you know, putting that message out there. And again, one of the reasons why I'm asking you to be on here is because I think you do a great job at portraying that image to someone that, you know, may not be a hunter. I remember uh, you did a conservation film on elk hunting or on elk, mm-hmm. basically. Um, uh, was that a couple years ago? Yeah, it's been uh, three years ago now I did Project Elk. Project Elk, that's what it was mm-hmm. called. And I remember uh, I was back at my parents' house over the weekend, and that came out, and I was watching it. Um, and my mom's she's been around hunting forever, but she's not a hunter. And and some other people that were there weren't hunters, and they watched it, and they thought it was just a great film. You know, it wasn't necessarily awesome about hunting specifically, but it was, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just the, the way the message came across is really good. And I would be comfortable, you know, sharing that film with someone that, uh, okay, say, you know, say I started dating a girl that w- wasn't into hunting and stuff to introduce it. I'd, you know, share one of your films or someone else that's doing that, or hopefully the stuff that I'm putting out there is in the, the sure. same way. And that's what I strive to be able to do, you know, and, and, and also just to kind of, go back where you were talking about the message of, you know, you don't make a living unless you're selling product. 
you know, mm-hmm. essentially for these yeah. companies and stuff. But I'm sure there's like a fine line of, you know, selling product and also, you know, putting out the content and the message that you want to portray. And it is, it's a, every, every piece is a balancing act there. It yeah. really is. And yeah. And it's, it's, um, I have a quote that I actually wrote down that was from my mule deer, my project mule deer film. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes and it's what I was just talking about that, you know, the future of hunting boils down to the 80% of the people that don't hunt and how they perceive the small amount of people that do hunt. So our actions, every one of them is being judged, you know, whether, whether we think they see it or whether we don't. I mean, you could think you're alone in the forest and, you know, it's so rare these days. Like people see or hear or know about everything that happens, you know? So it's just important, I think, to to put our best foot forward. And we're at a point in time right now in society that like people are more open to hunting than they've ever been in my lifetime or my dad's lifetime. You know, the, the, the organic food movement, being able to harvest your own food, you know, whether it's meat, whether it's vegetables, whether it's mushrooms, whether it's wild berries. Um, people are really taking a lot more interest in their food and i think as a hunting community if we can embrace that we have the opportunity to bring a lot more people you know let's i wouldn't say they'd become diehard hunters maybe some of them would but we have the opportunity to bring a lot more people over to understand our way of life and respect it yeah No, I, I, I think, I think you made a really good point in that. Like you said, there's that, that movement with people wanting to know where their food comes from. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I was never open to, I grew up in a small town and everybody, I shouldn't say everybody hunted, but most people hunted and it was just a way of life. And that's mm-hmm. where I grew up around it. Not until I moved to like a suburb area that I realized that not everyone's open to it, you know, <laughs> right? and I'm putting in for vacation at work and i'm like i'm going uh i'm going on an elk hunting trip what do you mean like you know they're asking all these questions and it you know it it made me really think and how you know i'm how i answer these questions and how you know you're portraying yourself and everything else with it and you know it got to the point where when i was working in the pittsburgh area that you know people that weren't hunting were asking about Hey, can you bring in some meat to try or whatever it would be? And it was a cool way to kind of introduce people to that. But I guess what I'm getting at is not everybody comes from the same tree that you do and your understanding and maybe the way you grew up. So making sure that, that you're coming out with the way you're answering those questions and putting yourself out there needs to be, you know, tailored to that. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that, that's, that's for sure. And so with you, Jason, specifically, I uh, you had done a film with Prime, I think, in the past. What it was talking about you, like, was it kind of making a living in a hunting industry? Yeah, if that mm-hmm. what it was, it was a it was called Prime Pro. Prime Pro, that's what it mm-hmm. was. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that film specifically was pretty awesome and, and inspiring from the the standpoint of like how I mean, like you you had a good career from the standpoint of a journeyman electrician and everything and how you, you know, chase that dream and was so for, for you to do that and want to chase that dream, was it because of you wanted to hunt full time? Was it 
you wanted, you thought you had a bigger purpose to get message across? Was it kind of a, a mixture or what, or am I just putting words in your mouth? <laughs> no, no, it's really kind of a combination of both. You know, I just always had a passion for filming. Like I didn't, I didn't grow up with a passion to want to host a show, you know, like you're not, that's not yeah the, the driving force. What I love to film wildlife. And that's why, like, I take a lot of pride in these conservation films and why I enjoy them so much is because the majority of my time is I'm just a wildlife photographer, videographer, cinematographer, whatever. So I just get to spend so much time around these animals and photographing them and filming them. And in in turn, I have learned so much about these animals and how to apply that to hunting, you know, because I'm around them so much when I'm not hunting them. You know, not every move matters then. If I spook them, who cares? But I'm going to go ahead and try this because I want to get this shot. If it works, it'll be epic. What I mean by shot is film yeah. shot. Yep. If it works, great. If it doesn't, who cares? They run away. I'll go find more, you know? And so through that process of filming and learning how to, like, interact around the herds to get the shots that I want, but also just sit back and watch them and not always feel like I got to intercept them or be here or do this, but just sit and watch them. You know, whether it's elk or bighorn sheep or mule deer, I have learned so much through that process, mm -hmm. you know. And so what got me into this was a passion for being behind the camera. And through that, I always knew somehow I wanted to make a living in the hunting industry. Like, I didn't know if it was going to be a taxidermist. I actually looked at being a game warden for a while. Um I just knew I wanted it to be maybe an outfitter. You know, I wasn't sure where I would fall, but I knew I somehow wanted to make my day-to-day -day revolve around what I loved so much. Mm -hmm. And through the process of filming just years and years for no purpose, I was able to collect like a really big archive of footage um, of hunts, of wildlife. And, I, and all of a sudden I was just sitting on this giant pile of great footage and that was really at a time when hunting TV started to really be on the up rise. You know, Outdoor Channel was there. Sportsman's Channel was there. They were really wanting to push for more shows. Um, being a, a guy that grew up in Montana in the mountains, and I did work as a guide, big game for elk and deer for years. And um, I just didn't feel like what I was seeing on TV really was like telling my story as a hunter. I felt like there was so much being left out that people needed to know about hunting, the stories, the beauty, the, you know, I remember, I won't name any names, but I remember one of my first episodes I sent to somebody in this industry. That's a big, you know, does what I do. And I really looked up to him and they told me that, if you don't get the kill shot, perfect, on camera, broadside, full frame, nobody's going to ever want to watch it. Like, yeah, it's cool, but you didn't get the shot. And I'll just, I'll never forget thinking like, kind of knocked the wind out of my sails a little bit because I thought I had done something different that needed to be done, you know? And the first time I sent it off, it was kind of rejected. Like, eh, keep trying, kid. You'll never make it unless those kill shots are on there. Well, I just, it wasn't real to me, you know? Mm -hmm. Sure, we all want that. That's what, 
you know, the end goal is, is to go out, find the animal that excites us, make a great shot and end the hunt. But we, you know, you know, there's so much more to it. And that's what I strive to do through everything I do is tell the whole story of hunting and not just think that if I don't have the kill shot, I don't have a story because some of my best stories, some of my best episodes have been no kill episodes because they ring true to people, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I understand like that that's the way it always was. I mean, you'd watch any of the, the shows and, and I watched them as a kid and you still enjoy the, you know, the monster bucks and the, the ones It's just like, how many kill shots can you right. put in each? Yeah, that was it. You know, and, and that's something cool to run maybe at deer camp while people are talking and walking in and right. look up and they see a guy shoot a big deer elk or whatever it is. But that doesn't tell the story. Right. That doesn't, that's not realistic. That's not, you know, what it's all involved. And, I mean, hell, if it, if it came down to that with with me and what I'm doing with this podcast, it'd be a complete failure because I don't always fill tags. You know sure. what I mean? And well, that, exactly. That, telling that whole experience is is an is something that takes an art to be able to do. And again, this is from my perspective. Seeing it is not everyone can tell that story um, completely. So that that's an interesting interesting point that you kind of had there and how you, you know, got involved. Yeah. And I mean, I guess to sort of finish that story off, I, I, I was able to meet up with, uh, um, some great people in the industry and I was able to show them that archive of footage I had and I was able to talk them into a TV show. And so I went from barely knowing how to open my email to then being responsible for 26 weeks of a television show. I didn't know how to edit. I didn't know anything, but I threw myself under the bus. And once that, uh, once that contract was signed, that was my chance. And I just, I self-taught my, myself on uh, editing and, and filming and delivery to the network. And it was a disaster year one. I mean, it was so cobbled together. And that was right at the time when SD was making the transition to HD. So a bunch of my old footage was in four by three format, but we were airing everything in 16 by nine format. So I was having to transcode all my four by three and put it in widescreen. And there was just, and I didn't even know what I was doing. Like, <laughs> I was, oh, I got to make it wider. Okay. How do I do that? Well, put in my DVD and figure it out. You know, yeah. like it was that elementary to start and it's just exploded ever since, man. I've never had to look back. I've got great partners and, and the show is doing good. We're going into our 10th season now. Man, that's and crazy. It is crazy. It's crazy for me to say it's, you know, it's been humbling and, and it, you know, to come to this show kind of reminds you, reminds me of the beginning every time, you know, and the difference in, I used to have to wear my heels off my boots at these shows, you know, back and forth and meet this guy and just shake and bake anything I could do to make scratch a living here. Yeah. You know, and now I'm just so lucky to have so many good partners like Prime who stand behind me and, and make my life easier to be able to go out and tell those stories and not have to worry so much about what we were talking about, selling product. Yeah. You know? And I, I love the fact that like, there's so I, I so many people, and again, this is assuming and for a good reason. But a lot of people just see, oh, this person's got a TV show. They don't understand the work that 
you know, went into it for you to build that from scratch. And, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of sleepless nights and stress and everything else. To (laughs) I used to sleep on my office floor because, and I didn't even like, I wasn't even smart enough to like put a cot in my office, you know? (laughs) So I literally was on the floor and because I didn't know what I was doing enough on exports and stuff, I, because the reason I started doing that is because there's too many times I would bring a project right to the wire or an episode that needed to be delivered to the network, like immediate, like I was out of time, you know, and my old editing system was like a dinosaur. My buddies called it the like Commodore 7000 because I worked on this just dinosaur of a computer for so long. They made fun of me, you know, cause like I could go on, but anyway, this thing was a dinosaur. Well, one time when I had an episode due, I, I left the office at like 1 a.m. and I hit export and I drove home and I came back and that export had failed and I was out of time. I didn't have enough time to redo an export and get it to him. So I essentially had to rerun an episode when I had a new one built. And so from that point forward, when I would do exports, I'd sleep on my floor because normally it was right to the wire at night. And if my computer would... Uh, if there was an air, it would get through to the export wherever it hit the air, and then it would give like this really obnoxious like ding sound on my computer. Yeah. So I would sleep there on the floor, just hoping not to hear that sound. But for so many years, I would hear that sound because I just didn't know what I was. I just didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. I was just fumbling through it, you know. <laughs> and so I, I literally had sleepless nights of just laying on my office floor, half awake, half asleep, nervous about the export and would it make it, and just listening for that warning to go off on my computer, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's it's fun to look back at those because. You get kind of just always so busy and always the next thing and what's next and what's next. You know, it's sometimes it's hard to turn around and look at that stuff, but it is fun to to talk about because it does bring up those memories of. Yeah of that kind of stuff, you know, that's funny. Like I, uh, so with, with podcasts, I'd release every, well, I guess it'd be Monday morning at midnight is when my timeline I set for myself for releases and I'm up on Sunday nights and I'm, you know, I'm running it through editing it, trying to upload it to lips and to get ready to go. And I'm like watching it and it's going and my, my internet, I live in the middle of nowhere. So the internet's not very good for uploading <laughs> stuff and it's just like slow, slow. And then it'll, <laughs> it'll fail. I'm like, no, I don't have, you know, even yeah. though that, no one really cares that if it probably releases at midnight. That's what I, it's different for you and you have you know, <laughs> actual deadlines on it, but this is what I set for myself. Man, I have so many nights where I'm up late just trying to make yeah. that happen. And it's, it's, it's funny to hear you say that. Like I said, I'm going through it currently. Same thing. You know? Yeah. And I don't, I knew nothing about <laughs> recording podcasts or editing, you know, uh, audio or doing anything with that, you know, and I just, I knew I had a, a thing I wanted to get across to people and thought I could help people with it. And just I was like, if I don't start now and just figure it out as I go, then I'm just going to keep, you know, putting it off. So, yeah, well, it's cool to set that goal and meet it like that. And it'll pay. I mean, it already is. It's yeah, you're doing a great job and it does doesn't go unnoticed. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Absolutely. But so, Jason, to kind of switch gears a little bit here. Your 2018 season. Do you want to talk a little about your hunting season? Let's let's go on a little bit of a lighter side here and <laughs> get into uh, hunting. What it kind of looked like for you? 
Um, 2018 was really a cool year for me. I put more time scouting in than I ever, well, I shouldn't say than I ever have, but than I have since I started doing this professionally. You know, I, I think big misconception too is people think that's all I do is hunt for a living. And so it's weird to hear me say like I got to go scouting, but really I, you know, just so busy once again, right up to season that I haven't had that chance. So this year I put in a lot of time scouting and really I was looking for one specific elk that I've found the sheds off of for two years now and I've never seen him. I've got no footage of him, nothing. Um, and so I kind of just got it in my head. I wanted to find this bull and I wanted to hunt him. I wanted to just be close to him, you know, and man, I never did find him like cameras, scouting, everything never did find him. But, uh, in the process, I just learned a pile about this new area that I was elk hunting because I had never elk hunted here before I had shed hunted, but never actually hunted the elk there. Mm-hmm. So it was all new to me. And, uh, and when I shed hunt there, I don't even see elk there. It's like they're just kind of moving through. So I have no way to learn anything about their movements during that time other than where I find their antlers. Mm-hmm. So it gets me in the right area. Anyway, it was awesome this year. I hunted that new area, put a ton of time in scouting, and I think it just paid off dividends. I mean, I ended up getting a nice antelope buck with my bow. Uh, really, the first day we went out and hunted antelope, Um just sit in water, you know, doing that. Um, and then just put the focus in on elk. And I feel like the timing for elk this year in Montana anyway was really early. So we, we were actually into bulls going pretty hot right at the beginning of September. Okay. And I think I shot my bull on September 10th and didn't recover him till the next day. Hit him a little bit low and back. He was able to make it further than we thought, but, uh, Able to get on him the next day, and that's probably, he's right at my biggest bull ever. Awesome. And it was just a sweet scenario. Sam Solholt was filming me, Ryan Kendall, and uh, called this bull in. In a situation I've told people a million times will never work. And that's like a herd bull with cows going the other way. Like you're never going to call that bull in. So you, so I thought, you know, and we, we ended up chasing bugles, got right to the edge of the timber. This bull was following his cows, headed away, bugling. And I'm like, Sam, I'll give him a few cow calls. We can get some footage of him bugling. He's a nice, big, beautiful bull. And then we'll just probably tail off the ridge this way, see if we can find something else. And cause these are prairie, these are prairie elk, like a big, wide open country. It's okay. little tiny pockets of timber and big, wide open country. So you can't just continue to pursue them in certain scenarios, in my opinion. So anyway, I started cow calling at this bull and he freaking turned around, squared up to me and just came on a line to cow calls. And I ended up shooting him at seven yards. And I mean, we watched him come for 500 yards and he was glunking. And I mean, he gave us the whole show just screaming and glunking and I mean, basically roaring. He sounded like a dinosaur coming the whole way. He was vocal, you know, and then just came right into our lap. And it's the first time I've ever had two camera guys. Well, not the first time, but one of the only times in that scenario I've had two camera guys with me. So once I had the bull coming, 
I was able to then to ask Ryan to go back over the hill and keep cow calling where I could still keep the cameraman with me. You know, normally camera guy's got to be with you. Yeah. And so I, I'm calling the bulls myself, which is tough, you know, unless you get the perfect scenario. So anyway, it worked out perfect. Ryan was able to drop back, keep cow calling and just sucked him right past us and Sam got some awesome footage, and uh, I'm sure he did. Sam it was an does incredible, uh, amazing experience, <laughs> and uh, actually, a chunk of that will be in the film festival tonight. Okay, that was going to be so, my next question. If I was going to get to see that tonight, yep, that's yeah, cool. You'll get to see that moment, not the whole hunt, but I yeah. ha- that moment is sort of the highlight of the film. Okay, mm-hmm. is the rest of it going to be on into the high country? It will be. Okay, yep, probably be my first show which would be first week of July in 2019 on the Sportsman's Channel. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So with uh, so you hunt, you were saying you're hunting kind of like the prairie type bulls. Is that something you prefer to hunt or is that just what it's this become, hunting area is like? It's become something I prefer to do. Um, like I was telling you last night when I bumped into you, I've, it was, it was interesting to me because it's an area, like I told you, I didn't know much about. There was not near the elk numbers there as places that I had hunted previous, you know, and I've decided there's elk, good elk viewing areas and there's good elk hunting areas, and they're not necessarily the same thing. A lot of the best elk viewing areas have the highest numbers. You're going to see them. You're always going to be in them. You're always going to be here in bugles. There's always something to chase. But I've found that the, the elk hunting areas are lower densities, bigger elk, more opportunity. And so I've started to try to find those fringe areas with lower densities because the elk are way more huntable, okay. in my opinion. And what what's the reason for them being more huntable? I think a big part of it is less eyes. Okay. Less eyes. You get into those areas with like a huge bull to cow ratio, you know, and if you're trying to kill those herd bulls, I mean, you're having to get through sometimes 40, 50 cows, you know, to get to one herd bull Mm -hmm. where those lower densities, those biggest bulls might only have 10 cows, you know? Yeah. So there's just less eyes, less nose, less ears. And, and the other thing, um, about hunting that kind of breaky prairie, badlandy country is it's just very conducive to stalking, stalking around, you know, and moving through it and being able to be pretty close all the time. So it's not these big, long valleys or big, long ridges, you know, there's just so much undulation and pockets and things that you can really maneuver around these herds Mm -hmm. without having to be sort of on the same plane they're on, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm following you there. So I've started hunting that you know, trying to focus on those areas really started last year, but, um, it's, it's just, it's really changed the game for me. Yeah. And the other thing too, is like, I grew up in Bozeman, Montana. I've hunted the mountains my whole life. And, you know, whether it's the Bridgers, whether it's the Gallatin, whether it's the Madison, like those are all mountain bulls. Um, and we've just gotten to have so many grizzly bears, You know, I mean, there's every year in those mountain areas, like there's a lot of hunter grizzly encounters. And so for me, it's like, I can go to an area where there's bigger elk 
less hunting pressure, no grizzlies, and I think better odds of killing. And that's the equation that I've got through hunting out in that country. That sounds like a damn good equation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't really see a negative there. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's for sure. Other than you just don't see the numbers, you know? You can feel defeated a lot quicker out there, feel like you're in no man's land with nothing around sometimes. But yeah. when it happens, it's 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 a beautiful thing. And, and the other thing I've started doing, too, the last couple, well, probably since 2013, I really started focusing on water in those areas. Now, granted, once once again, you go back to the mountains, you got a creek that runs the whole drainage. They can water anywhere. Yeah. But you get out east, you know, it's very specific, very limited water sources. You know, whether that's a cattle stock tank, um, which are on private and BLM because of the grazing and whatnot, or, or a reservoir that's collected rain. Like, there's just way less water. And I've found, like, I just push my, I love to hunt big herd bulls. I'm not a trophy hunter. Like I love to hunt big herd bulls, but if a satellite walks in front of me and gives me a perfect shot, I'm going to take it. But my focus is always those herd bulls. And I've decided like you can luck into herd bulls occasionally. Like what happened to me this year. You can randomly just hit him when he's right, make the call, bring him in and kill him. But to consistently get shots at these big herd bulls i've found water is really the only way and it's not as eventful you're not calling you're not running and gunning you're not moving through the country but i've just found like you know yeah five days of sitting one water hole morning to dark and there's elk in the area you're gonna get a shot you just have to tell yourself to stay there you can't chase the bugles even if the elk are over here and it just doesn't seem like they're coming your way. You can't get up and leave. You have to tell yourself to stay there. Yeah. And since I've started hunting that way and not chasing bugles, like my opportunity at big bulls has went up. Interesting. So they that, have to water. You know, there's no choice. Yeah. So. And so that's that's interesting because, so I had uh, John Barklow on the podcast here recently from Sitka and he, uh, that's basically the same thing he was saying more or less around the, you have to hunt the elk on how they're able to be killed. He goes, you got to adapt. He goes, yeah, maybe. Yeah. He goes, everyone dreams of running ridges and bugling and doing that. That's awesome. He goes, sometimes that's what it is, but he goes, a lot of times it does require sitting like you're a whitetail hunter sitting, yeah. you know, in a tree stand and, and it might not be as sexy from the standpoint of, you know, yeah. what, what you think of from it. Yeah. But if, if your goal is to, kill an elk or your case kill a herd bull or whatever that may be then you know maybe you know adapting to that is what you got to do so that's and again this is coming from me who hasn't killed an elk but i'm just (laughs) you know kind of pulling your guys points together yeah for sure so yeah no it's it's very true i mean i had one one of my best days ever well, it was my best, and I didn't kill anything, but one of my best days ever on the on sitting water, I had 16 different bulls come in in one day, and not one of them knew I was there. Now, granted, the way the wind was and where I had to set up on the water and whatever, the the two bulls that I would have wanted to take that came in, they all were at the opposite. I could have never got a shot. But they all came into the water, and that was just such an enjoyable day. You know, it just, it, it, 
it was just the magic circle that day. We just happened to get into a ball of elk and we happened to hit the water. Those bulls were hitting and it was just like one at a time. They were peeling off and coming in and it was unbelievable. And I've never not even come close to being close to that many bulls running and gunning, you know. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting way of looking at it and just a, a different perspective. So I, I've where I've hunted has all been thick dark timber type stuff and uh-huh. this year i'm looking to do something a little bit different um i've been hunting colorado for three years and spent over 30 days hunting elk in that type of environment love it it was great but i'm looking to again i just like seeing different country and sure. doing different things so i'm kind of opening my eyes to different types of areas and experiences from from that standpoint so that's sure. that's helpful to hear yeah I've- from that it seems like the people I pay attention to in Montana are the guys that I really respect their elk hunting abilities. And I mean, like you say, Barklow, wh- whoever, like most people will agree on that. Yeah. You know. Okay. It's if, but it's area specific. You know, you got to have that, that right terrain. You got to have the right. There can't be a creek that runs miles down a drainage. Mm-hmm. Like that ruins that plan yeah you know i mean i did use a really interesting uh technique that actually jerry mcpherson who founded montana decoy uh jerry was one of my first sponsors years and years ago and and he's since been bought out and um but he taught me a different way of thinking about decoys so i've not done this for elk but i've done it for antelope so if you get into an area and you want to bow hunt antelope and you're you're wanting to sit water, but there's like 10 water holes in a section, he'll take coyote decoys and he'll put them at the nine other water holes that he's not sitting. And then he'll go sit on the one. And so I've started using that tactic when I bow hunt antelope. And if I know of any other water, even within like a mile where I'm sitting, I'll go put a coyote decoy on it. Or like one time... There was three water holes. I only had two coyote decoys, so I took one of my just black shirts off, and I just hung it in the tree right there by it. And so it was funny because, you know, you would never think about using a coyote decoy to hunt antelope. Yeah. But since I've started doing that, it's unbelievable. Really? I mean, if the antelope is going to go to water in that area, they're going to come to where you're at, Mm -hmm. you know? That's interesting. So that was, that. I've always, like, been really drawn to that tactic and kind of thinking about things different than we normally do and how successful you can be by that yeah no that's that's definitely an interesting way of doing i never heard of that before with using you know a predator decoy essentially to Mm -hmm. to be able to hunt antelope yeah huh so from you from your elk hunt now so did you do any other hunts this year so yeah after my elk hunt i i had drawn a wyoming general tag this year i'd always wanted to try to get two bulls in a year and i had a chance one time i hunted colorado came up short so never had killed two bulls in one year well i drew this wyoming special tag and uh or general unit um and uh ended up going down to wyoming on a rifle kind of like early season rifle hunt and that was just a really cool experience like that is a hundred percent on x maps i mean i had never even put binoculars in that area i had never stepped foot in the area unless you hike in 
a couple miles, you can't even glass the area. So it's not like you can even scout around or anything. So, and with the way film permits work, I have to pull a film permit for every day I film on BLM and I'm limited to a section. And each section is $250 a day. And if I move, it's another 250 So if I want to hunt two sections of ground, essentially it's $500 a day for me to film on public land. Wow. So, yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. With putting together a whole season, that can be, if yeah. you were hunting public yeah, land. Yeah, if probably, it was all public, it would be expensive. ridiculously expensive to do all 100% DIY on your own public land to do what I do is hands down more expensive than doing a lease or, you know, whatever it may be. Like, those yeah. film permits are expensive. So, anyway, my point is, I literally had to scout a section with Onyx and a spot I had never been. I had to invest in film permits because you got to apply for them early. Mm -hmm. And so, I put all my money into one section of ground in Wyoming I had never stepped foot in invested in film permits, camera guys, yada, yada, and would go down there. And very first night we hiked in there, I spotted a big old herd bull chasing cows down off the hill, right, right to where I thought we should be hunting. And that was so rewarding, you know, I mean, yeah, to be able to do the scouting on my phone and have a hunch where I think there'd be elk because of the way they move or whatever, you know, and then go in there. And three days later, I was able to kill that herd bull. And through watching him, just kind of hanging around, seeing their movements, and we were able to slip in and, and get it done. And yeah, that was really cool. I mean, start to finish, just 100%, just going with your gut and rolling in there and making it happen. That was awesome. That was a really cool hunt. So I was able to accomplish two elk in one year. Um, then this year was the first year for my boy to hunt. Montana does a youth apprentice hunter program where they can actually start hunting as long as they have a mentor who is of age to hunt, can take them out as early as 10 years old. When I started hunting, you had to be 12. Mm -hmm. um, but now we can get them out at 10 years old, hoping to get a little interest going a little earlier. Yeah. And uh, so I was able to take him out uh, with his little brother and he was able to get his first deer. So that was really cool. Oh, I mean, that's a big awesome. moment as a father. Yeah. You know, you dream of that, that exact moment for so long. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to believe it's come and gone. Yeah. You know, um, so that was <laughs> huge. My dad was there. My boys, a good family friend. It just was, you know, it, uh, it was really cool moment to have my dad and my boys and get the deer and. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a special moment, and and so from there uh, I started mule deer hunting, and ended up getting a really nice buck, one of my best mule deer, which showed up out of nowhere, um, in an area I've hunted a lot. I'd never seen that deer, and just kind of dogged him for about five days, and was able to get him, and then I uh, went to. Saskatchewan with good friends of ours up there, and I was able to arrow my best whitetail buck up there uh, to date on day four. Okay. And so, just what, a heck of a What season. dates were you up in uh, Saskatchewan, if you don't mind me asking? I think we went up there November 6th. Okay. 6th or 7th. So, yeah, I was in Alberta in the Bozo in the same time. Oh, nice. Whitetails. 
um, up there. That was the first time I've ever went with an outfitter. I went with Jim Hole Jr. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. up there and uh, He's the guy, man, that was an awesome experience hunting those northern right. whitetails like that. Just bodybuilders. Oh, <laughs> man, that's that's and that's a brutal that's a brutal type of a hunt. It you is. Know what I mean, that's a. Was it pretty cold when you were there? It was. It uh, it was cold, but it was really cool. This outfitter had, he knew I was coming bow hunting, so he made these like snow camo ground blinds that he just custom made, and they were awesome. I mean, he had them just like a bunch of spruce boughs over them, a bunch of snow and sticks. I mean, you could walk right up to that thing, and you wouldn't barely see it. And so I would sit in that from morning to dark, and I had my little Mr. Buddy heater in there and then i always put like the thermacare back pads yeah you know for like relieving muscle strain or whatever so they make shoulder uh it kind of looks like a pair of wings that you stick to like your base layer and so i'll put those on then i'll put the thermacare back pad on and that just helps keep my core warm all day yeah. you know underneath and um it also when you're sitting all day in the cold it's you know your back gets stiff it's hard not to get stiff so it's nice to have all that just kind of keeps you loose in the blind so yeah for sure between you know uh some hot coffee and and that heater and then having those thermocare and of course you know i got all the sitka stuff on which is just super nice gear for sitting there and being quiet and so it was awesome it was cold but i you know, there's something so satisfying about being comfortable in like really harsh elements. Yeah. No, that's that that was the well, we went up to Alberta. It was for Sitka to test the new the fanatic stuff oh, that they yeah. launched here for the whitetail line. So went up there as part of testing that and man was that that was cool. I mean, we had temperatures below zero and we're in a tree stand and as Jim's program is it's pretty intense and you know you're you don't sit you stand and you're and <laughs> it was cool to be comfortable you know yeah in that gear and everything but that that north those north woods like that that's a really it's a, it's a neat experience one is. time i had a bunch of deer around my stand and the wolves lit up howling all around me i mean you could just see every whitetail just stop what they were doing and staring into the woods and it was a crazy feeling to feel like a fly on the wall watching nature happen you know yeah. they didn't know i was there but to see their reaction to these howling wolves and just be a fly on the wall yeah be able to film it was so cool yeah that's awesome yeah that the, those north woods i i didn't kill a buck up there had awesome encounters but like that place just makes me want to go back oh man it just screams giant whitetail yeah like <laughs> you know pennsylvania where, where i grew up there's not there there is some big whitetails and i hunt you know the, the appalachian mountain whitetails and there's some old deer and everything but nothing like that like up there right. is just the body size the the everything about them almost seems like a different species it's, for sure and it's they're they're amazing amazing animals and especially when you have predators like wolves and yeah a, a lot of coyotes and whatever else you know yeah just those elements that they got to carve out a living in is impressive yeah oh that's that's for sure oh that's cool that you ended that hunt do you go up there very often we used to all the time um my dad is really good friends with the outfitter well we all are but uh that's where it started and so like I shot my first bear up there when I was 12 with him. And so we've been going for years. The last few years, we've kind of scaled it back, haven't been going as much. But 
went back up there this year and did the hunt with my dad. And, uh, yeah, it was great. It was a great way to end the year. I, I went up there. I had such a good season up to that point that I just said to myself, like, I have zero expectations. Like, I just want to sit there, have fun, watch whitetails. If a nice one comes by, great. If one doesn't, hang it up and call it an awesome season, yeah. you know? So I went in there with zero expectations, and it was just awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's Day cool. four, that buck showed up, and I didn't even have to look twice. Like, And that's what I hunt for, you know, is just the one. I don't whatever gets the heart going and yeah. it could be smaller than you think it could be the one you've dreamt like i don't know when it's gonna happen yeah but when i when i don't know whether to like go for my bow or the camera like that's the moment that's the buck yeah. you know and i definitely had that moment in the blind it was a cluster for a minute but <laughs> it was awesome. cool too and for what i do hunting being able to hunt and film myself in that environment and be able to get everything and make it work it was it was just really rewarding and then yeah. of course right when i stuck him and he took off i was able to get a hold of my dad and tell him and then he came in with the outfitter and helped me recover it and was there when i first put my hands on it and yeah just it's just awesome it is that's a really really cool experience and what a season too yeah like you said you arguably your biggest bull and then mule deer whitetail and yeah and then even you know above all of them your boy you know killing yeah the first deer that's a that's a pretty good season there it was man i just felt really lucky some years it seems like you just try so hard and the harder you try, the harder it gets and things just don't work out and you just start laughing at yourself because it gets so funny. Yeah. You just can't do anything right, you know? And then other years you're just like, how did that happen? What just happened? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And in fact, you'll see my reaction in the film tonight after I stick that bowl, I turn around at Sam and I go, what the hell? Like, where did that come from? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Isn't that, it is crazy how things can change like that. Oh. I mean, this was, as if from a filling tag standpoint, was my worst season I ever had. I went to Colorado for 14 days straight hunting elk. Had a bear tag too. Didn't fill either of those tags. Started hunting whitetails in Pennsylvania. Didn't fill my archery tag for the first time in like seven years. And then... I went to Alberta, didn't fill a tag, and then I came down to rifle season in Pennsylvania, and I was just, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself, and finally just took a day, I I slept in a little bit, made big breakfast, bacon and eggs, went out for for a hike, and ended up shooting a nice buck, and and I packed him out, and it was just like, uh, it was, you couldn't wipe the smile off my face when I was doing that, like it was, it was really cool, my dad came in, helped me pack him out and everything, and it was it was cool to yeah. when, like you said, when you have those moments that just, when you think, you know, nothing's going right or, or in your case this season, how could it get any better? Right. And then, yeah. <laughs> and, and that happens. So it's funny you say that because, um, the day I killed my bull, I told the guys, I'm like, we're just going to sleep in this morning. Like we've been busting ass for four or five days getting up. We've been going hard. Like, let's just reel it back. Have a nice breakfast go out, have some coffee. We'll hit a high ridge and we'll just listen and we'll just spot, you know, that was my plan. We're just going to reorganize. And, uh, so we got a late start, slept in, had a breakfast. Now, granted, we weren't like ridiculously late, but got up there and the bull I ended up killing. As soon as we got out to listen for bugles, we could hear him way down the ridge. And so we just started chasing him. And next thing we know, we're 
it's over. Yeah. You know, on the day that we're like, ah, we're just going to reel it back today, reorganize, pull out. Because I had been sitting in a water hole with Sam that you couldn't see anything and you couldn't hear anything. Like, so I felt like every day that went by, I was losing track on elk. Like they, they weren't showing up. So I got this urge, like, we need to get out of this hole. I need to see what's going on again. Yeah. You know? And so that was the plan. Let's get out of this hole. Let's hit a high ridge. Let's listen in glass and we'll reorganize because that hole isn't working. You know? Yeah. And boom, done. <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool. So what's, uh, what's next for Jason Matzinger? What's 2019 look like? Well, um, it's going to be a little slow. I say slower than my last, I'd say four years, because this is the first year I don't have a major conservation film that I'm in the making of, whether it's production right now or filming. So, um, you know, it's getting project elk done project mule deer. Now the circle of life, it's kind of like, I'm very satisfied with those films. I want to just kind of take a time out. I want to be better at everything else. Like one of my new year's resolutions this year was to be better at everything besides what's in this room. You know, I want to be a better son. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better friend. Mm -hmm. Um, so for this year, I've kind of reeled it back and just concentrating on, on everything, you know, the, the, the foundation of everything, not only friends and family, but also just, making sure all my sponsors are still like, am I doing a good job for them? What can I be doing better? You know, I feel like I've been running and gunning for so long. I just want to kind of take a time out and just, you know, make sure everything's still good before we hit a second phase of just going forward. Yeah. But, you know, personally, my goal, and it's lofty, there's a lot of things that are going to have to work out for this to happen. But my next move, my next big move, that I would really like to do is revamp hunter's education from the ground up. Okay. What, I, how do you, how do you plan on doing that? I guess, well, what's your idea for it? Well, I just think I want to make a very interact. I want to make a video series that is very appealing to watch. Very exciting. Very, uh, up with the times. And, um, I want to make a curriculum that just really spells out like, what it means to be a responsible, ethical sportsman today. You know, hunter safety is so much at know your target and beyond. And that's great. You have to know your target and beyond. You have to know when the safety's on. You have to be a smart hunter. You have to know those basics. But to be a hunter in today's age goes right back to our first couple sentences on this podcast. There's a lot more to being a hunter nowadays than just knowing your target and beyond. You have to know how to take a good trophy photo. You have to know how to interact when somebody doesn't agree with you on social media. You have to know how to walk a trail with a rifle and an animal on your backpack and be a good, you know, respect everyone else coming up the trail and not make a scene. And, and you know, there's so much to being a good ethical sportsman today that these kids, adults, anybody getting into hunting needs to understand. And there's just so much of that that is not involved in hunter's education. So I want to I want to start by making a video series that has a curriculum attached to it. But I also want to give these kids incentives. I want to bring in my partners. I want to I want my partners to supply these kids 
at least give them the opportunity for their first rifle, their first bow, their first pair of boots, their first pair of Sitka pants. Like, I want to reward them for them doing good. Yeah. And I want to get them incentive. And I want my, you know, the partners to to help incentivize these kids too. Because, you know, think about it. Like, my first pair of boots, elk hunting boots, was a pair of Schnee's boots built right there in Bozeman, you know? And that to me was like, that was like the rite of passage. Like I got my elk hunting boots. Like I, I yeah. become an elk hunter. And because of that, like I'll always want a pair of Schnee's boots. Like I'll buy my boy a pair of Schnee's boots. Yeah. You know? So I think if you can in fact affect them young and, and show your support, like great job, man. Here's 25% off your first prime bow, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the better they do, the more they're rewarded and, and set them out with not only the right mindset, but the right gear to be yeah. successful too. That, you know? That's a cool way of looking at it. When you said about your boots, I think of my first buck knife that I got. That yeah. was like a thing my my dad had with my grandpa, the same standard buck knife, yeah. you know, and and that's what was given to me, you know, when I was 12 years old. To start, I'm like, I'm a deer hunter. I got, you know, I exactly. got my gutting knife. I got my skinning knife. Like this is, you know, what it is. And that's, that's a really cool, you know, way of looking at it. And like you said, being able to supply those kids with that type of stuff or help them yeah. supply with it is, that's cool. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know where to begin. Yeah. I mean, I really don't. It's lofty, but I know a lot of the right people that can move that needle mm-hmm. and um, I'm going to push for it. Cool. I don't know if. It'll happen, but that's something I want to do. Awesome. Well, I commend you for that, and I think that's something that definitely is needed. And, uh, yeah, that, that's awesome. That's, I that's, appreciate that, that. That's cool to hear. So, well, that that's you said you were stepping it back. That's a pretty lofty goal, like you said here. Coming <laughs> <up>. <laughs> yeah, it's. I don't see that one being an overnight sensation. It's going to take a while. Yeah, but, uh, sure. It's really something that I... I hold close and want to want to make a difference somehow in that regard. Awesome. So one last thing I want to ask you, Jason, is I had asked most of my guests, sometimes I forget at the end, but so my slogan kind of is with East meets West is how do you define adventure? So that's the question that I'm going to ask you is how, how do you define adventure? Now, that's a great question to, I think having kids has changed that for me. Mm-hmm. For me, adventure always had to be something most people wouldn't do, in my opinion. Like, I felt like unless I wasn't further than them or if I wasn't hunting harder or I didn't spend more days or I didn't. An adventure to me was, you know, getting back in or feeling like I was experiencing something few people had experienced. You know, I never felt like an adventure was just like hitting a National Forest trailhead and walking up the beaten path and back down. Now, granted, when I was little, yeah, but that's changed through the years. And it became this big, grandiose thing. And I become such, so particular about photos and filming and areas and that I've really like overthought it for too long. Yeah. And so what I've realized with my boys is I've overthought it. Like, so when I go to take my boys out, I realize that an adventure to them is like hiking up the trail with their sled and hitting the, a hill and we just sled for a while and we go back. Or we just hike up and we have a 
you know, eat some mountain house on the bridge crossing or something. Like, they eat it up. Yeah. And they are just loving every minute of it. And to me, it seems very elementary and just very non-adventurous, I guess. But to them, it's everything. And it is what's going to make them adventurers. Mm -hmm. And so it took me this mindset of like, your kids don't have to go to the top of the mountain with you to have an adventure. You don't have, that isn't how you have to introduce them. It could be the simplest things like a walk down the road and looking at birds or, you know, and so I think I've kind of went down a rabbit hole here, but having kids is redefined adventure for me. No, I've that's realized a- I've overthought it for too long, mm-hmm. you know? No, that's a, that's a really interesting way of answering. I, I like it. That's, that's a, a good way of thinking about it. Cause I think I'm back in the mindset of the way you were before. Again, I don't have kids. So that's, you know, kind of where that's coming from is I always think of, you know, getting out of your comfort zone and trying to do something, you know, that's pushing myself where, yeah, that might be a little bit different. Well, and to me, it still is like, uh, my next big hunt is a doll sheep hunt in the Northwest territories. And that's definitely out of my comfort zone. And that's going to be a great adventure for me and my friends. Mm-hmm. But but it doesn't have to be a doll sheep hunt in the Northwest Territories, you know? Yeah. So. Cool. It, I guess it depends, you know? I have different levels of adventure, too. Yeah. There's definitely no black and white answer to, yeah. to that No, one. it's a great question to ask, though, because it makes you think. It really makes you think. Awesome. So, Jason, uh, I won't take up any more of your time here. I really, really appreciate you sitting down and, and talking with me here at the, Likewise. the ATA show. So, wh- where can uh, people find more of your stuff at and where can we, uh, yeah, I guess find more of your content and what you're putting out there? So, um, the show is on from July to the end of the year, every year, third and fourth quarter. So, we're not on right now, uh, but Sportsman's Channel is where we air all our original shows. Um, all of our past seasons are on MOTV.com, My Outdoor TV, which is an app you can put on your phone and watch any of my past seasons anytime you want. I have a YouTube channel um, that I put a lot of my past episodes, and I'm starting to do a thing called Behind the High Country, showing like you know some of what we do at these shows and whatnot, mm-hmm. so they can catch up with that stuff there. Uh, a lot of my conservation films can be seen on elknetwork.com, rmef.org, or wildsheepfoundation.org, or muledeer.org. So um, a lot of places to find it, but uh, I would say the main thing for the TV show to get the most of it would be motv.com. Okay. So Awesome. Well, again, thanks, Jason, and uh, hopefully we'll be talking here again soon. I and hope we do. Good luck in the film festival tonight. Thanks, man. Starting to get nervous. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Only a few hours out. So That's right. All right, buddy. I'll be there cheering you on. All right. Well, thanks for this. Yep. We'll see you, Jason. Later. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.